Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. There is a handout this week as well. The outline which may help you follow along and perhaps take your own notes along with the outline. Well, as we walk through Genesis and the story now of Jacob, heir of Isaac, heir of Abraham, God is bringing Jacob back to the promised land. Now that God has made Jacob not just to be alone anymore, but now to be a family, in fact, a tribe, if you will. He has a large family and many possessions now. And God is bringing him back to the land of promise, the land of Canaan. God delivered him last time. Well, last time we saw in Genesis 31, God delivered him from Laban, who was a formidable foe. And uh, Laban had... Uh, manipulated, cheated, and oppressed Jacob in various ways while Jacob lived with him in Padan Aram for about 20 years. But now, there's been a covenant made between Jacob and Laban, and Laban is off the scene. He's no longer a factor in Jacob's life. So you might think, after that account, well, now it's time for smooth sailing. Now Jacob's scot-free, as they say, or home-free. Not so. Because starting in chapter 32, now Jacob has to turn his attention back to his former sins and to his estranged brother Esau. You remember, part of the reason Jacob left Canaan in the first place, in fact, probably the primary reason besides finding a wife, was the fact that his brother Esau was angry with him. Jacob had had deceived and cheated his way into getting the blessing from his father Isaac rather than Esau. Now, this was God's providential plan, and yet the way Jacob and his mother Rebekah went about it was wrong, very wrong, very manipulative. And so, 20 years ago, Esau had... It had been learned that Esau was was plotting to kill Jacob once Isaac was out of the way, once their father was dead. So now God has told Jacob it's time to go back to Canaan, but Esau is still down there. Actually, as we'll see, Esau is probably now more in the area of uh, Seir, which became known as Edom, uh, south of Canaan. But now Jacob has to strive And contend, perhaps, with his brother Esau. And his chief concern now is how to prevail. How to be reconciled to his brother Esau. And not end up dead in the process. But the big idea of this text, as we will see, and as Jacob will learn here, is that we must prevail not only with men, but with God. We must prevail not only with men, but with God. And so I've titled this sermon, Striving with Men and with God. As we look at this account, first of all, verses 1 through 2, it opens up as God sends his angels, his messengers. That's what the word angels means. God sends his messengers to Jacob. Reading verses 1 and 2. It says, Jacob went on his way, 
and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. As John Crude writes, Jacob declares that the place is the encampment of God, and he calls it Mahanaim. The latter term is the Hebrew word for encampment, except that it is a dual form, meaning two camps. Jacob's camp is here on the, what would be the eastern frontier of Canaan, of the promised land, east of the Jordan River. But Jacob is right away reminded by God after his encounter with Laban that he is not alone. The God who appeared to Jacob at Bethel when Jacob saw the staircase between earth and heaven with the angels ascending and descending. And when God made all those promises to Jacob there, that that God who appeared to Jacob at Bethel is fulfilling his promises that he will not leave Jacob until he's done what he's promised. And so God lets Jacob see what we usually don't see. He lets him see, sort of a vision, the angels of God meeting him, coming to meet him. And where Jacob camps, they camp. Two camps, Mahanaim. What an encouragement right away as Jacob is confronting one of his worst fears. It might sound trite to say God is God is back, but that's the idea, just in a glorious way. But now, next we see, uh, and there does seem to be perhaps a wordplay here. Once God sends his messengers to Jacob, Jacob sends his messengers to Esau next. Verses 3 through 8. Same word, Malachim, can be either messengers or angels. Here it says, verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels, here it is again, into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Before we get into the details here, I like what Derek Kidner says about the route Jacob is taking as he comes back to the promised land. He says, geographically, the call to Bethel, God's calling him to return to Bethel where he had the vision, where he first set up a pillar. The call to Bethel would take him nowhere near Esau, ensconced in the far south at Mount Seir. Spiritually, he could reach Bethel no other way. God had promised him the land, and its borders must march one day with Esau's. Besides, to meet God, he must first be reconciled with his brother. The sequence of chapters 32, 33, culminating in 35, 1 through 15, acts out powerfully the principles of Matthew 5, 
23 through 25a, where, where Jesus says, when you're coming to worship, first be reconciled to your brother. God has called Jacob back to the land to worship and to fulfill, to fulfill his vows that he vowed at Bethel. But first, he has to deal with Esau. Notice how Jacob addresses Esau as he sends messengers to him. Though, he, though Isaac's blessing, which Jacob had stolen in a sense, though that blessing had made Jacob lord over his brothers, that was the wording, Jacob humbly addresses Esau as his lord. He speaks of himself as your servant, Jacob. He is being intentionally humble, lowly, not haughty, trying to communicate his attitude toward Esau. Jacob also mentions the possessions he's acquired while away from Canaan. I have all this stuff, perhaps to indicate that he has no wish to take what is Esau's. Jacob's not coming back to the promised land because he has no inheritance where he is because he ha has nothing to his name and he needs what's Esau's. No, I have plenty, but you need to know I'm coming. But I'm addressing you as my Lord. I'm your servant, Jacob. I know I'm at your mercy, Esau. When the messengers return from Esau, they, they don't have a lot to tell Jacob. They said, we delivered the message. And without indicating that they know why Esau has so many men with him, they say, Esau is approaching with 400 men. Now that sounds to Jacob like a show of force. It immediately puts Jacob on high alert. And so as it says, he, he starts thinking about defensive strategy. He starts thinking about, frankly, how, if he is attacked, how he might not lose everything all at once. If Esau attacks one of the two groups, the other group might get away. So, Jacob is very frightened. Says he was greatly afraid and distressed. What does he do next? And you know, I think commentators, some commentators, now others agree with me more here, but some commentators are, are just really harsh on Jacob. Probably because they just don't like him in some ways. He's, you know, he's the conniver, all that. But um, I think some people view Jacob's actions in this chapter pretty... Um, um, oh, I lost the word. They, they view them in, in the worst light possible. Like, Jacob's not depending on God. He's working on strategy. That's not depending on God. Well, wouldn't you? <laughs> wouldn't you work on strategy? Come on. The next thing we see in verses 9 through 12 is that Jacob is not just depending on himself. He actually offers up a model prayer to the Lord on this occasion. He calls on God for deliverance from Esau. Jacob has matured in his faith. He, though he is doing his best to protect his family and his possessions, and his best to interact humbly with Esau and reconcile with him, he knows all his efforts will be in vain if the Lord isn't in it. So, verses 9-12, through 12, Jacob calls on God for deliverance from Esau. Verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, 
Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. As I said, Jacob's prayer, Jacob's prayer is a model for our prayers. He's honest about his fears. I fear. I fear him. I fear Esau, he says. And I fear what he'll do not just to me, but to the mothers and the children. He's honest about his fears, but he clings to God's commands and promises. I'm doing what you told me to do, Lord. You commanded me to do what I'm doing now. I need your help. And you've promised that you're doing me good in all of this, even though I can't see it right now. And he humbly praises God for the unmerited favor shown to Jacob. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. With only my staff, I crossed this Jordan River. Now, coming back, I've become two camps. I know you've already done me good, Lord. I can see that in the past. I know this isn't my doing. This is your doing. I give you the credit. But Lord, I'm I'm afraid. It's not wrong to have the emotion of fear in the presence of very real danger. But what do you do with that fear? God doesn't expect you to somehow cover up that fear in your prayers. He knows about it anyway. He wants you to pour out your heart to him. Say, Lord, I'm afraid. That's what Jacob's doing. That's what we ought to do when we're in these situations. And as Derek Kidner puts it, the urgent request kept back till this point reveals a new gap in Jacob's armor by its last phrase, the mother with the children. Verse 11. I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. As as Kidner says, he is no longer self-sufficient. Even his past is not his own affair. Now, Jacob did things in the past that were inexcusable. But now, his whole family may suffer for this. He's looking at cold-blooded murder, he thinks, of his wives, his children, let alone himself. Men, you know how this is. It's one thing to have to face an enemy that may do you harm. It's another thing to think that you may be helpless to protect your family. That's what Jacob's feeling. And he knows it's his fault, in a sense. No excuse for Esau being in a murderous rage, but Jacob certainly provoked it in the past. Well, verses 13 through 21, Jacob sends gifts ahead. To gain Esau's favor. He sends gifts ahead to gain Esau's favor. Verse 13. 
So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present, sent to my lord Esau. And behold, or excuse me, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So, of course, Jacob is, is trying to figure out how to get across to Esau that he's not there to take anything that's, that's Esau's, that he actually respects Esau, and that in this whole matter of, of the birthright and the blessing, Jacob knows he's stolen from Esau. He's trying to at least give a token of restitution. Andrew Steinman says, he, he points out um, something you wouldn't just naturally get in the English here, but it's, it's very apparent in the Hebrew. He says, Jacob's thought about how to reconcile with Esau is a fourfold play on the word face. Verse 20, he hopes to appease Esau. The Hebrew idiom is he hoped to cover his face um, by sending a gift ahead of me, literally walking to my face so that Jacob could then face Esau. Or literally see his face. So that perhaps Esau might forgive me. Again, literally might lift my face. John Currid picks up on this too. He says, Jacob's hope is that Esau will literally lift my face. This is a Hebrew idiom that means to confer favor on another person. In addition, in the final verse, the word face appears four times in the Hebrew. And then again in the next verse, verse 21. The reason for this is anticipation. The next story, Jacob's wrestling with the angel, occurs at Peniel, a Hebrew term that means the face of God. Here's the point. Um, there's this, this, this huge emphasis so far that's all-consuming to Jacob. How will I face Esau? What he doesn't know is he's about to face God first. He's thinking all about facing Esau. The next thing that's going to happen is more important than that. He's going to come face to face with God. So that brings us to verses 22 through 32. Jacob wrestles with God to gain his favor. Jacob wrestles with God to gain his favor. Reading in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. By the way, commentators say, people who know the, 
the geography there that this was uh, quite the task. The Jabbok is a stream, apparently, that, um, that runs sort of in a, a steep, a sharp ravine with uh, very high hills, even cliffs around it. So he's, he's um, again, he's getting in a defensive position. He's probably, he's probably putting the family on the side of <clears throat> this stream um, that's not where Esau will come first. That's probably the idea. He's trying to put this, this natural barrier uh, in front of his family. Continuing to read, though, in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone on one side of the Jabbok. And, this is abruptly stated here, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, or Peniel, doesn't matter how you say it in English, called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. What's happening here? Well, Jacob sends all his family and possessions to one side of the stream, but before he himself can get over on the side where they are, he's all alone, and apparently in the darkness, someone grabs him, and Jacob probably is fearing for his life. And this becomes a wrestling match, of course, a very serious match that would Jacob would probably perceive as a deadly contest. Someone is trying to subdue Jacob in the darkness. And this is quite the lengthy wrestling match. It doesn't stop until it's almost dawn. Now, Jacob is probably quite the hardy guy. Um, quite strong. Remember how he, when the shepherds said, oh, it takes more than one of us to move that stone off the well. Remember that? Jacob said, oh, Rachel's coming. I'm going to move it all by myself. Uh, Jacob's a strong guy. He's been out in the elements working hard. And there's this man. It just calls him a man. He appears as a man who's, who has a hold of Jacob and is, is trying to subdue him. But it says, um, it says a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Of course, we see as the story progresses that this is 
God accommodating himself to a human sort of form as the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, is often seen doing in the Old Testament. Uh, This isn't, of course, the incarnation. This isn't God become man, but he's appearing as a man, interacting as a man. And he he does so to such an extent that Jacob can actually uh, start to win in this wrestling match. But it says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, then he exercises what you should see as supernatural power. He touches, or some prefer to say he struck his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. One commentator commented on how usually, at least in our day, um, uh, from what we know, usually that that particular sort of thing being put out of joint in that spot that usually doesn't happen without a really high impact event, like a like maybe a car accident or something. Um, that takes power. So this man, in quotes, he sees he doesn't prevail against Jacob, so he exercises superhuman power and injures Jacob greatly. Have you ever had, I haven't, have you ever had something put out of joint? It can be excruciating. So at this point, Jacob is somewhat incapacitated, but he won't let go. He's still hanging on. What's this wrestling match all about? Well, Meredith Klein comments that... um, The way he sees it is the angel of the Lord engaged Jacob that night in wrestling combat, a form of judicial ordeal attested in ancient lawsuits. Sometimes to settle a dispute that was hard to settle with evidence, you'd have two two combatants do belt wrestling, as they called it. (laughs) Uh, That might be something like what's going on here. Alan Ross says, in the encounter, the fulfillment of the promise seemed threatened. At Bethel, a promise was given. At the Jabbok, fulfillment seemed to be barred as God opposed Jacob's entrance into the land. God, who was the real proprietor of the land, opposed his entering as Jacob. If it were only a matter of mere strength, then God let him know he would never enter the land. God is in this very picturesque um, more than picturesque, this very visceral way, he's showing Jacob, you're not going to win what you seek with your natural human strength. It's not going to happen. I won't let it happen. And as Alan Ross also says, the point of the story for the nation of Israel entering the land of promise would be significant. Israel's victory would come not by the usual ways by which nations gain power, but in the power of divine blessing. See, in many ways, and we see this throughout the Old Testament prophets especially, Jacob, the person, becomes a parable for the nation of Israel that came from him. And often he's set forth as an example, especially as we'll see in a bit in in the prophet Hosea. As God interacted with the the man um, Jacob, he would interact later with his people, Jacob. Another point that I think has been obvious to many as they look at this, Alan Ross pointed out, he says, 
At times, God must cripple the natural strength of his servants so that they might receive the blessing by faith. Sometimes God must cripple our natural strength as his servants so that we will receive the blessing by faith. It says he touched his hip socket, literally the hollow of his thigh. And remember from Genesis 24 that the thigh was closely associated with the man's reproductive organs. The thigh was sometimes even a euphemism for them. Because of that close association, some even see a deep symbolism here. Um, Because uh, the same word for touching the thigh here is the word used of what God does to the Messiah later. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, there's the word, smitten by God and afflicted. So, and I'm just going to mention this and move on. I don't think this is the main point, but Meredith Klein says here, smiting Jacob at the seed of his reproductive powers portended the suffering of Jacob's messianic seed. He would be smitten of God to win justification for Jacob and all the promised seed of Abraham. So take that, mull it over if you want to. But we do see a definite um, further development of what happens here in Hosea chapter 12. Let's turn there. Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 6. Later, as God deals with the nation of Israel, particularly the northern tribes, but also with the southern tribe of Judah, the whole nation that came from Jacob, he reminds them of what he did with their ancestor Jacob. Hosea 12, verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Israel is being encouraged to imitate the example of Jacob, who prevailed with God, with the angel of the Lord, by weeping and seeking his favor. Not by a show of strength, but by what we'll see in a little bit, a humble tenacity. Weeping and seeking God's favor from a position of weakness. So, back in Genesis 32, if I turn back there, Uh, Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then verse 26, then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Seems like this man had attacked Jacob. And now he's saying, let me go. For the day is broken. As if he doesn't want his face to be seen in daylight. And now Jacob is the one who won't let him go. Because Jacob now understands 
This is no mere man. This is God. And so he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And often, of course, revealing your name in Scripture reveals your character in some way, right? What is your name? And Jacob responded, Jacob. Heel grabber. Connotation of trickster. Deceiver. Someone who gets gets things by cunning, by craftiness. Then he said, God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel. Now, some of you may have the old King James authorized version in your minds. Um, Scholars now are actually quite agreed that that, uh, there was a mistranslation there. Um, As a it used to say, as a prince that has power with men and with God. Um, but there's no support now for getting that, that word, a prince, out of, out of the Hebrew here. Uh, ESV is a good translation. <clears throat> Where it says, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Israel is a combination of the word God, El, and the word for struggle, Sarah. Normally the meaning, as Richard Belcher says, would be God struggles or may God struggle. But this is reversed in the explanation of the name given to Jacob. You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So he says, Jacob has learned to wrestle with God and he emerges broken but blessed. Ever after this, Jacob and his descendants would be known as Israel. Those who have striven with God and with men, but particularly with God, and have prevailed. As Derek Kidner says, after the maiming, combativeness had turned to a dogged dependence, and Jacob emerged broken, named, and blessed. He says the blessing this time was untarnished, both in the taking and in the giving. It was his own, uncontrived and unmediated. Let me put that in other words. No longer is Jacob deceiving and cheating to gain his father Isaac's blessing. Now he seeks God's blessing by simply not letting go. It's the same word showing up here for blessing that we had all the way back when Jacob was conniving to get his father Isaac's blessing. Now he won't let God go unless he blesses him. But there's no conniving. There's no... There's nothing except holding on and, and saying, I won't let go until you bless me. And God responds favorably to that. But what are we to make of this story? What are the applications of this text? As I said, the big idea is that we must prevail not only with men, but with God. How do we apply that from this particular true account? First of all, think of Jacob returning to face Esau. Number one, past guilt is often our most formidable foe. Past guilt is often our most formidable foe. Jacob 
had a lot of danger coming to him from Laban, previous chapter. But did you notice Jacob, um, he didn't seem exactly terrified. He interacted with, with Laban much more confidently the last chapter because he knew that he had always treated Laban justly and, J- and Laban was the one who had treated him unjustly. There was great danger, but Jacob played the man there. And you don't get this, sen- this great sense of fear from Jacob then. But now when he faces Esau and what he did to Esau in the past, well, that's a whole other story. Past guilt is often our most formidable foe. Turn to Psalm 25, please. Psalm 25. The psalmist David seems to be very much in the same frame of mind as his ancestor Jacob when he writes this psalm. When he is begging God to deliver him from his enemies and not remember his past sins against him in the process. And as with many of the psalms, I think we can do a little better than simply reading it and, and picking up the feel of it. Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord. And your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Lord, please view me through the lens of your own steadfast love and faithfulness, not through the lens of what I've done in the past. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. There it is again. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship, or the secret counsel, of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Again, using the very name there, which Jacob received on this occasion that we're talking about. Does past guilt haunt you? 
If it does, I probably don't have to list specific examples. If it haunts you, you know it. If it is a person you have wronged, you may fear facing that person more than you fear your most powerful enemy. And in any case of guilt, you've also wronged the God of heaven. You've not been reconciled to him. Uh, or I should say, if you've not been reconciled to him, you do well to dread facing God too. But there is reconciliation with God. And through that, there's reconciliation with others. But before Jacob could face Esau, he had to face God. And he found God abundant in grace. As Psalm 103, verse 8 tells us, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So if past guilt haunts you, first of all, you need to deal with the God who is merciful and gracious to those who come to him. And through that, those who have been reconciled to God, at least from their side of things, they are then able to be reconciled to others as well. And if they've learned humbly to come to God confessing their sins, they will learn humbly to come to others confessing their sins too. Not just sweep it under the rug. They can deal with it because God's taught them how to. Second application. Behind our visible conflicts lie the invisible conflicts of the heavenly host. This is going back to the beginning of the chapter, especially. Behind our visible conflicts lie the invisible conflicts of the heavenly host. God just gave Jacob a glimpse of the unseen world at the beginning of this chapter. But there is, there are spiritual forces of light and darkness at work. First of all, for those stubbornly resisting God in their sins, their hostility toward God is actually part of an unseen war waged by evil heavenly entities against their sovereign maker. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. John eight forty four. Jesus told even very religious people who were not believing in him. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So the devil and his angels, as Jesus calls them, <clears throat> are also at war with God's people. Either they attempt to trick us into sabotaging our own mission, or they simply try to take us down and out of the fight. And so Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But on the other hand, and this is more to the point of Genesis 32, on the other hand, those reconciled to God had his heavenly hosts on their side. And it is the hosts of the Almighty God who will be victorious in the end. So though we don't see it as Jacob saw it once, actually twice if you count Bethel, though we don't see it, this is a a reality. Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. There's a poetic reference there to God crushing the serpent under our feet. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That psalm had particular significance to the Messiah, the seed of the woman, but it also has significance for his people. God dispatches his angels, though, of course, this is far beyond our comprehension, how this works out. God dispatches his angels to our aid. That's not superstitious to believe. That's Bible. Hebrews 1, in fact, as it contrasts the angels with Jesus Christ, who is their maker and their Lord, Hebrews 1.13 says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are are ministers sent out to serve the elect, specifically. Mahanaim, two camps. Where God's people are encamped, there are encamped God's angels. You remember the, the account in 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha the prophet was asleep in the town of Dothan and when he awoke in the morning, the enemy forces from Syria or Aram, depending on your translation, they had surrounded the city. They wanted to catch Elisha because they thought they had heard that Elisha was tipping off the king of Israel to what their king was going to do militarily. So human forces were after Elijah, Elisha rather. They had him surrounded, and his servant panicked and said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Reminds me also of Psalm 34, verses 1 through 7. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And that angel of the Lord, as we've said often in the Old Testament, seems not only to be the commander of heaven's armies, but he is also himself God. 
This is the one who has already appeared to Hagar and to Abraham in the book of Genesis. This is the man with whom Jacob wrestled. This is the angel, meaning the messenger who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. This is the prince of the heavenly host who appeared to Daniel in the same sort of glory that the apostle John later saw as the risen Christ appeared to him. When he put the pieces together, this messenger of the Lord and the messenger of the covenant, as Malachi called him, is none other than the second person of the triune Godhead. He's the son of God, one with the father in power and glory. And the created angels are his heavenly soldiers, his glorious servants. We read of Joshua in Joshua chapter five. Joshua, when he was by Jericho, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander or the prince of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This messenger accepted worship and further commanded it. The messenger of the Lord, the prince of the host of the Lord, will dispatch his forces to the aid of his people. All the more now that he is the son of man is glorified and at the right hand of the father. But sometimes, sometimes that same glorious person will confront us before blessing us. Rather than finding the immediate immediate assurance of Christ's blessing, we will find ourselves wrestling with this Holy One, as Jacob did. He will seem to oppose us as our dread enemy. We grapple with him in a desperate struggle. Why is that? Have you ever found yourself thinking, I thought I would have Christ's blessing and now I feel like I'm in a a wrestling match with the Lord? Have you been there? That brings us to our third application. God must first smite us in order to bless us. God must first smite us in order to bless us. He must smite things like our self-sufficiency. As when the Lord said to Gideon, when he was about to go into battle against the Midianites, he said, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And so God whittled down Gideon's forces, whittled them down until there were just 300 guys left. And God said, okay, now it's time to deliver Israel. But he had to smite their self-sufficiency. Take away any illusions about whose strength was at work here. He did that with Paul, the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. A thorn was given Paul in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited, Paul said. And three times, he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God must also smite our self-righteousness, as he did for Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. He, Paul recounted later, I won't read all of it for sake of time, but Philippians 3, he recounts the fact that he had all the credentials for self-righteousness. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees, as to the law, a blameless Pharisee. He was so zealous, he even persecuted Christ's church. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Jesus had to stop Saul of Tarsus in his tracks, knock him down, blind him, and show him all that that I thought was to my credit is for nothing. God must smite our self-righteousness so often. Jesus told that parable in Luke 18, verse 9. He told also this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, only the lowly may approach the Holy One. So often, God must bring his people low. If you aren't low, he has to bring you low. And so often, we are not low in our own sight. God must bring us low. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. What has brought you low, seeming to cripple you? Has God done something like that in your life? Do you hate God for it? Or have you yielded as the clay under the potter's hand? It may be chronic illness or even terminal illness for some people. It may be unjust accusations which follow you wherever you go. It may be physical or mental handicap. Sometimes it hurts more when it's not you, it's a loved one. suffering and hardship of a loved one. Maybe it was a tragic accident or even death. Maybe it was losing your employment or losing a relationship on which you depended and it's gone. Either because they walked away or they're gone. Perhaps it's long frustration and inability to achieve your deepest longings. Maybe you long for a child. Or a spouse. And perhaps 
You experience deep loneliness that doesn't seem compatible with God's promises. I'm supposed to have a family in Christ. Why am I so lonely? I know it hurts, whatever it is, but don't let go of God. He's the one who's brought all this to pass. And he's the one you need. You must reckon with him. And you must cling to him. Deuteronomy 32, 39 removes all our excuses for not dealing with God in these situations. We say, oh, it wasn't God that did that. It just happened. No. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's the God with whom you must reckon in your suffering. But that leads us to the fourth and last point of application. Humble persistence obtains God's blessing. Humble persistence obtains God's blessing. Jesus told this other parable in Luke 18 of the woman who wouldn't leave this judge alone. This judge was unrighteous. He didn't care about real justice. But because this this woman would not let him alone, he said, finally, okay, okay, I'll give this lady what she wants, so she'll stop bothering me. And in saying that, Jesus is not saying that's what God's like. He's making a big contrast, actually. He says, he ends the parable this way, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If you consistently come to God, he won't be this unrighteous judge who eventually gives in. He will speedily, in the right time, answer. Humble persistence. You cannot overcome the Almighty God. You cannot force Him into submission to your will. You cannot make Him do anything. That's what it means that He's God and you're not. But by His grace, you can refuse to let Him go. That's why we have this expression that we probably take for granted. Wrestling with God in prayer. Taken from this story. You cannot do anything to God, but by his grace, you can refuse to let him go. And he responds to humble persistence. Because that's his work of grace in your heart. Some of you know that truth from past experience. Do you, like Jacob, still have a limp from such a struggle with God? Perhaps you still bear a thorn in the flesh or at least the reminder of past helplessness somehow. But to you, it's a sweet reminder of God's sovereign mercies in your life. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. On the other hand, perhaps some of you are resisting Christ right now because of what humble submission might cost you, the marks it may leave on you, but you'll have to give up. 
You might have to give up something precious to you. It might scare you to death to joyfully trust in Christ. Because it feels like giving up control of your own life somehow. Don't fear the wounds which a forthright encounter with Christ may give you. Fear what will certainly happen if you do not meet Christ in this way. As Jesus said, Mark 9, 43, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But for you who have abandoned all hopes but Christ, and you're clinging to him, you can say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And you will not be put to shame. Your hope will not be let down in the end. God is there to bless you in the end. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we confess our inadequacy to even talk about or or think about these things properly. Enlarge our minds and our hearts and humble our wills. Humble us before you so that we are willing, pliable clay in your hands as as the potter. Have your own way, Lord. I have no idea as your preacher the specific situations in people's lives for which you meant this sermon. No idea. Maybe some hints from being their pastor, but only you know the secrets of the heart and of everyone's deepest conflicts. So, Lord, please do your work by your Holy Spirit. Even if you must wound, heal us, Lord. Draw us close to yourself and grant us your blessing, your deepest blessing in Christ. And bring those who who are afraid of Christ and who do not want him, bring them into sweet submission to him today. We ask this in his name. Amen.